Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. In this edition, we are focusing on International Women's Day. I'm David Reed, and I've been catching up with some of the previous number ones in the Data IQ 100. Coming up, I speak to Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, about her experience of being number one in 2018. So I think Data IQ was, was ahead of the curve on that. I also speak to Pyle Jane, the 2016 number one. Kind of lent down to me, and then he said, dude, you've got no chance. Tony Sikina has been speaking to female data scientists in the industry to find out what tips they have for themselves and for others about how to thrive in this sector. Finally, have recent scandals about self-harm and suicide channels on social media increased the pressure to introduce regulation on digital media? Tony and I discuss. First, I recently spoke to Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, about her experience in being the number one in the 2018 Data IQ 100 and what the last year has been like for the ICO. In February 2018, Data IQ unveiled its new list of the 100 most influential people in data-driven businesses in the UK, and we named you, Elizabeth Denham, as our number one. Um, what are your memories of that moment? I felt that I was incredibly honoured and privileged to be able to receive these kind of accolades and the recognition of the regulator to be the number one person in data. Not somebody who is a, a chief data analyst in the company, but the regulator. I think there was a lot of foresight in Data IQ recognizing the Information Commissioner as an important person in data because 2018 really was the year that data protection went mainstream. So I think Data IQ was, was ahead of the curve on that. A lot of things happen next. And when I think back to 2018 and the beginning of 2019, that year was very nicely bookended by, first of all, the recognition from the data industry as number one. But I ended the year, actually, with a CBE, the commander of the British Empire. So then government recognized me at the end of the year. In the middle of that year, I was elected the chair of the International Conference of Data Protection Commissioners. So it's been a very big year for me. I certainly didn't expect when I received this award last February that by the end of the year, I was going to have um, presented, uh, been a witness before four committees of the European Parliament. I didn't know that I was going to be appearing before the Grand Committee of Parliamentarians representing 500 million people around the around the world on the issue of misuse of data in political campaigns. And of course, our very big case this year at the ICO was investigating Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and the whole data ecosystem in campaigning. That was our very big file. We've issued sanctions and fines and taken enforcement action against multiple players in the political campaigning ecosystem, including Facebook, including prosecution of, of Cambridge Analytica, which is a company now, now in administration. That file has garnered the attention of commentators and politicians and journalists around the world, and I think contains some very important lessons for those of us that are working in the data-driven businesses. This podcast is going to be released on International Women's Day, 8th of March. Generally, data and technology lag behind in terms of the gender balance. 
What do you see in terms of female representation in your area? I, I think we might be ahead of the curve in our area. I serve on, sit on the board of uh, European data protection regulators. 57% of the commissioners across Europe are, are female. Um, certainly um, more than 50% of the staff in, in my office that work at the ICO are women. So I think there, there is an opportunity, there's a great opportunity for women who are working in data protection to be leaders in our field. And I can see a trickle-down effect of that across data protection, kind of focus of ethical issues. I can see that written across and, and trickling down to other data-driven um, businesses and organizations. And now, Tony Sakina has been speaking to female data scientists about their experiences of working in this industry. Since January, I've been conducting a series of interviews with women who are featured in the Female Lead and 20 in Data and Technology. From their interviews, I've picked out sparks of wisdom that were born of their lives and experiences of working in data and analytics. They struck a chord with me, and they could be applied by anybody of any gender in any sector. Many interviewees mentioned confidence and self-belief in regard to what they wish they had known when they were younger. Lindsay Pello, Head of Member Data and Insight at the Co-op, would tell little Lindsay to take more risks and put herself forward for promotion and more responsibility earlier on. Natalie Jacomis, Group Head of Data at Go Compare, had to be encouraged by one of her female colleagues to accept the invitation to take part in the female lead and be one of the 20 in data and technology. So I asked her for her tips on stepping into the limelight. She said, put yourself forward. Believe in your abilities and demonstrate your value and worth. Offering to help a colleague problem solve can also be an effective way to show your capacity and skills. People need to speak up, and that may mean being comfortable about being uncomfortable and owning your accomplishments. Two interviewees expressed that it is much easier to get stuck into a topic when you truly enjoy what you do. Elizabeth Moorcroft, senior data scientist at Aviva, studied big cat movements for her PhD. Like any PhD, there were good bits and bad bits. I was lucky though, as whenever I got stuck, I just had to read more about cats. And who doesn't love a cat fact or two? Tess Merkalova, performance analytics lead at Captify, so that she does data investigations or modeling in her spare time. She built a segmentation DMP tool for her company, just because she thought it would help create efficiency in targeting. Michelle Wong, who was recently promoted to head of marketing analytics at Farfetch, has a mantra of seeing obstacles as opportunities to learn and develop. However, if she ever finds herself slipping away from that perspective, her jade pendant acts as a trigger to get back to that mind frame. Diana Akano, Insight Manager at Upper Street Events, advocated the teaching of coding to young children as she sees it as an essential life skill. She said, with most jobs now, if you're able to automate a process to make your life easier, be that using macros to copy and paste or format data, or running a predictive model, it's very useful. Anthea Desilas, Chief Solutions Officer at Polymatica, spoke of the importance of optics surrounding a leadership team. She said that 50% of the leadership team at Polymatica are women, which she hopes will send the message that hers is a company that values diversity and diversity of thought. So many times I've looked at the websites of other businesses that work in the same industry, and the leadership teams are full of middle-aged men. My final favorite thought comes from Lara Islam, Digital Media and Data Consultant on the definition of happiness, equilibrium, and being a role model. She recently read a book that defined happiness as a blend of pleasure 
and purpose. Some experiences have a high proportion of pleasure, others have a high proportion of purpose. Getting to a healthy balance can seem impossible. I'd advise people, and continue to advise myself, to work towards achieving that balance. And where you may be in a position of leadership, have the courage to embody that balance so that others may be inspired to do the same. I hope you find these women as inspirational as I did. And now, in 2016, we chose Pyle Jane, then Managing Director of Barclays Analytics, as the number one in the Data IQ 100. I spoke to her in a London coffee shop about her experience and memories of being number one and what she's been doing subsequently. I started by asking Pyle about her memories of the moment when she discovered she was number one in our list. In a taxi to get to the event and uh, we were running a little bit late and he was asking me, you know, what's the event about, you know, who's going to be there and I gave him a, a you know, quick debrief of, you know, it's the top 100 in data and I said somewhere I feature in this list and he was like, oh, okay, fine, fine. We then screeched into this room just as you were about to announce the top 10 and, um, you know, you got halfway through the list and he kind of leant down to me because he's a little bit taller than I am and then he said dude you've got no chance and you know what he meant by that was that the you know the the people that were between 10 and 5 were just fantastic you know they were having industry level impact and there was me you know in this role at Barclays where I didn't feel as though you know I was anywhere close so you carried on naming you know the top five and then suddenly my name and face just appeared on the screen and I have to say I was just totally shocked and overwhelmed um, you know having that level of recognition it was an amazing feeling well you're absolutely right David our work should speak for itself um, but it doesn't and that is the reality um, but I do have to admit when I was voted number one in Data IQ um, I, I didn't self-nominate what bit that surprised me after I'd um, you know, got this recognition was that lots of people asked me why I'd, I'd got it and why I'd been recognised as number one and actually that question did surprise me but it did make me realise that I hadn't done a strong enough job in storytelling some of our impact and successes outside Barclays so I think the story was well known in you know the area within the business I was part of um, and you know we'd presented all the way up to the chairman to the CEO of Barclays as well but actually we hadn't gone out um, that well into the industry to tell that story and I was so proud to tell it you know when I was made um, number one um, but actually it was a big learning for me and I'm a huge believer in storytelling so I can't believe that was a bit I fell down on but also when we were hiring so for new talent because actually to say that we've been recognized and the leader of the team's been recognized just meant there were some good things happening and you know in the in the situation that we're in where there's almost a war on talent in the world that we're living in today that becomes hugely important because you know it's those borderline elements that then ensure that you know candidates are making a decision that's favorable to you ask a colleague to nominate you if you don't want to nominate yourself um, and that's easily done because you can go and find a colleague that you trust and actually go and get them um, to say you know get them to summarize some of your achievements from their perspective and you can always input into that as well um, the second one is to say think about the broader cause of why you may want to self-nominate so do it for the team and for the people that are part of the journey and your success definitely David so I made a big decision last year to actually um, leave my executive role in a FTSE 250 bank 
and I've joined J-Curve. Um, so J-Curve is a London-based management consultancy. Um, we work with FTSE 100 organisations and really the mission is to increase the agility of UK PLC. And for me personally, I really wanted to have a broader impact on helping organisations with analytics and really how we turn value from data. And for me, I truly believe, and for Jacob, we truly believe that it's about people and not data. The other element that's going to be one of my key focuses this year is to continue the great momentum that we've made on women in data. Um, you know, I'm chair of um, Women in Data and have been for the last few years. Um, we're really making tremendous progress. Um, last year, we saw more women in data roles. Um, you know, we've developed our network to 20,000 women. Um, we have a flagship conference every year. So th last year, it was attended by 1,000 individuals, which was amazing. Um, and this year, we're evolving it to have meetups. So we're trying to localize some of the events and create smaller discussion groups on some key items. And also, what's fantastic is that our partners are hosting these events. So we actually get to feel what it's like in their organizations as these events happen. Um, me personally, I really want to um, spend a bit more of my personal time on thinking about some of the policies that relate to women in data and help change some of that. And I think that's going to be critical in order for us to really achieve our mission, which is gender parity in roles in data. And it's been proven that for organizations that have um, better diversity and inclusion in their organization, there actually is an uplift in their financial performance as well. And now, has scandals around self-harm and suicide messages being posted in social media increased the pressure for regulation? Tony Zakina and myself discuss. I'm with Tony Zakina and we are going to take a look at social media, data governance and regulation because social media are very much in the spotlight right now as a result of a number of issues. Now, Tony, um, perhaps you can talk us through a little bit about what's been going on that's got everyone so concerned right now. At the moment, there is a lot of talk about anorexia and suicide, actually. So Instagram has recently brought in some new controls to try and prevent the images that promote and glorify suicide from being accessed so easily. Because there was a case of a little girl called Molly, I'm afraid I can't remember her last name, but she... Um, unfortunately took her own life and it was found that she had accessed these types of images and this was found to be awful and um, children's rights campaigners, internet safety campaigners are saying that a lot more needs to be done to protect people from these images which is absolutely right and there's also the issue of pro-anorexia groups in anonymous messaging apps. So social media are coming under pressure to behave more like publishers then to uh, apply editorial filters to be more conscious of the material that's appearing rather than just being a platform which is currently their legal position. Absolutely, because unfortunately as humans we are imperfect. It would be great if all that were accessed on Instagram or Kick were supportive, uplifting messages or beautiful images that didn't show any harm. But that's not the case. There are people that are going to put on really horrific things that would encourage people to do harm to themselves and maybe to others. And so there do need to be controls that are brought in to limit damage to people, and it can't just be self-regulated. One of the issues seems to be the age of the users. Children in very vulnerable states or just at an age when they're trying to understand themselves and the world. Um, and I think the example of Molly, she was 14 perhaps. 
that's not an adult under UK law, but she was able to open an account, probably multiple accounts on social media, without any apparent checks and balances. That seems to be a gap in the data governance space around social media, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think there are many more things that social media companies could be doing, but I think a lot of it is down to public pressure and the lack of it up until now, and money, because it might take a lot more money to implement more stringent checks. They're not short of money, though, social media. They they seem to make a fair profit. Absolutely. I think it's really bad that they haven't, it's taken this long for them to recognise actually there's a big problem here and we should be protecting young people. So public pressure is clearly mounting and we've seen big efforts recently by Facebook, the biggest social media platform, to try and show it's responding. What you're saying is that we're going to see that um, amongst many of the other smaller but fast-growing platforms. I would hope so. There might be the moral obligation, but how do we force them to do that? Well, I think one of the interesting outcomes from, for example, the fake news select committee investigations could be, um, as a consequence, more regulation of social media. And in fact, our own information commissioner has been advocating that it should fall within the ICO's realm. I think that would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? Because it would combine the data piece with the content piece in a way that doesn't happen anywhere currently. That is a very big remit. And we'd have to make sure that the ICO has the capacity to take on such a a big task. But then also there's the issue of social media being global. If it's regulated here, how do we ensure that it's also regulated in other countries and people aren't able to circumvent the the regulations by saying they're somewhere else? And I think you had a view that perhaps it's not just about financial penalties, that there should be some sanctions, some way of putting genuine pressure on social media if they don't up their game. A couple of months ago, I think O2 had a problem with its data and people weren't able to go online and it was all over social media. People were panicking. It was the big outage of the month. What were they going to do? A couple of months before that, Twitter was down. Everyone was in a tizzy. And I think that's what really gets reaction from the public and also from the social media companies. If you are found to be doing something nefarious with people's data, if you're extremely lax with people's data, for example, TikTok just got a big fine for handling the data of children under the age of 13, I believe, they should be shut down for a little while. And that shutdown is going to affect their users, it's going to affect their brand perception. And I think they would take that risk a lot more seriously than the risk of a monetary penalty. I think since last year's eruption into the public spotlight of what was happening on Facebook through the activities of certain apps like uh, Cambridge Analytica, all of us are far more conscious and increasingly demanding that level of action from our legislators. So regulation cannot be far off, whether that is domestic or global. So for now, Tony, thank you, and we'll wait to see what 2019 brings. And that's it for today's podcast. If you have enjoyed it, please like, link and share using our hashtag at the data IQ. We will be back again next time with a look at data ethics. If you'd like to find out who's in this year's Data IQ 100, please go to our website, dataiq.co.uk forward slash Data IQ 100. And next time, we'll have an interview with Orlando Mercado, number one in the 2019 edition, as well as Andy Day, number one in the 2017 list.